Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Listen in as I interview some of the best and brightest. Today, I have a truly special guest who my Bitcoin Austrian listeners will greatly appreciate. He is Dr. Guido Hulsman. Those of you who follow me on Twitter or are regular podcast listeners will know that I often refer to his work as he has been quite influential on my own understanding of monetary theory. And as I'm obviously a big fan of his, this was truly a special interview for me. Just some background for those of you not familiar with Dr. Hulsman or his work. He is a professor of economics at the University of Angers in France, and he is a senior fellow of the Mises Institute. He is author of Mises, The Last Night of Liberalism, and he is also the author of a phenomenal book, The Ethics of Money Production. In my view, he is one of the great Austrian monetary scholars of our time. Quick note, apologies about the audio not being ideal. I had to record this one through phone call as a backup option. I obviously wanted to make it easy for Dr. Holzman to participate and couldn't use my normal higher audio quality recording method. But I promise you the monetary economic discussion and insights are worth it. Dr. Holzman, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I'm a big fan of your work and I've really been influenced very much so by your work in the ethics of money production, deflation and liberty, and the many talks that you've done uh, on uh, from the Mises Institute. Um, so it's a great pleasure to welcome you today. Well, I'm happy to be on the show. Thank you, Dr. Hulsman. I think one, one topic that my listeners would love to hear you elaborate on, and one topic that I love the way you explain in your book, The Ethics of Money Production, is this process of monetary debasement and of how we have a certain quality in money, and yet the operation of the market process becomes perverted, and we, we see a deteriora deterioration in the quality of money. So could you outline a little bit for the listeners on that process and some of the monetary interventions that lead to that? Uh, the, the way quality is preserved on the market is through the competitive process. So entrepreneurs have always the, the, the ambition to provide uh, better products to their, to their clients uh, because that's for them the, the way to stay in the market and to gain, uh, gain market uh, shares. Uh, what we have in the case of money is monopolies. Right, so we have public monopolies in each uh, territory. There's, there's only one uh, type of money that is uh, tolerated by the law uh, and or promoted by the law in the form of legal tender laws, uh, which, which is typically the case in, in, in France and in, in the U.S., right? If you look at U.S. Uh, banknotes, you have uh, the, the inscription, uh, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private, uh, I don't know any Canadian dollars. Those I've never had one in my hands, but I suppose you have something similar uh, written on them. So in that case, um, the competitive process cannot work, or it's not allowed to work. And as a consequence, um, we get a deterioration of the quality of money. The whole point why uh, monopoly has been created is to allow the government to um, uh, issue uh, sort of money that could not withstand the uh, competitive pressures of, of the market, right? So in that sense, uh, this, uh, this money is always inferior as compared to the kind of alternative money that uh, could be proposed if comp competition were allowed. Um, uh, you see this very clearly if, if you uh, uh, raise for yourself the question. I mean, if I had the free choice 
between, let's say, American dollars or Australian dollars or whatever, and uh, commodity money or some other money that uh, the, the, the supply of which is limited um, for, for natural reasons, for example, because production costs are relatively high, well, then, of course, you would, uh, for, uh, for your own uh, needs as, as, the, as a user of money, you would always opt for a sort of money that uh, provides these additional guarantees that its purchasing power will not disintegrate uh, anytime soon or very, very quickly. Uh, so you would rather use gold coins, silver coins. You would use bank accounts that are denominated in gold uh, and silver and so on. You would use credit cards that are denominated in silver and gold and so on. Uh, rather than uh, a pure fiat money that has um, the biggest disadvantage as compared to commodity money, that its uh, supply is not limited by any natural um, uh, limitation. Right? So the only way uh, that the government can bring dollar notes as, as fiat money right, into circulation is by outlawing competition. And the consequence of this is, uh, again, that the quality of money deteriorates. Fantastic. Dr. Holzman, I also like the way that you outlined some of the different monetary interventions. And perhaps it might be useful to rank them or sort of order them because there are many different ones. So obviously the main one, you know, this, the existence of a central bank, the lender of last resort. And as you point out, legal tender laws, uh, capital gains tax laws, implicit and explicit bailout guarantees for large banks. If you had to rank them in terms of what which ones are most deleterious or most negative, how would you rank those interventions? Well, the worst is probably a legal tender law because the legal tender law um, uh, forces you, uh, upon you a certain uh, priority or ranking of the different types of money. If you have um, uh, just a monopoly uh, of the state and uh, for the, of the state's money somewhere, you're still free to uh, assess it uh, as, as you feel free, uh, as, you, as you see fit. For example, if you have a debt to pay, uh, let's say, in, in, in euros, and the euro didn't uh, didn't have the legal tender standing, but only enjoyed a monopoly, um, yeah, then you would still be f- free to say, okay, this uh, the, this debt um, uh, that I contracted, whatever, a couple of years ago, so well, we'll have to pay it now in more euros or in, or in less euros uh, than the initial contract was contracted. But because it's a legal tender, well, you are um, uh, entitled as, as uh, uh, a debtor to just pay exactly the amount that has been specified initially. Right? So uh, the monopoly and legal tender are 98% similar, but I, I still think the legal tender laws are a little bit more pernicious than the monopoly laws. And then all the rest is, is comparatively um, secondary. Of course, what the government always uh, tries to do in the, in the ideal world, right, the government would have a fiat money, which, which they have today, um, uh, but they would also uh, like to have a money without, um, that they can produce without any limitations. Now, we're close to this. We're not quite there, right, because there are a few limitations of a juridical nature left. Um, and uh, ideally, also, they would uh, be able to use and uh, to control all units that have been issued uh, in the past, which is also not the case. For example, if you think of the fact that we have uh, still a significant amount of money in the form of cash, so we have uh, bank notes, uh, so these are in the pockets of uh, individuals or firms. They're not directly controlled by the government. 
in in a, in a world that would be ideal from the government's point of view, uh, they would be able to control all units that have been issued in the past. So, um, and that technically that could be done if all money existed only in the form of accounting money or scriptural money. So, if all the money that existed were only on bank accounts, then it would be technically relatively easy for the government to crack down on each uh, individual account. Fantastic. And Dr. Holzman, just wondering if you could comment on the operation also of capital gains tax laws. Perhaps these laws also stop private individuals from using other things as money because then they become ensnared within the net for taxation revenue. Yeah, that's correct. For example, let's say if, if you have um, a gold-denominated account, uh, and uh, gold increases in value relative to your national uh, government money. So then that, that would, in most jurisdictions, this would represent um, a capital gains, so you would have to, would be taxed, right? And as a consequence, your incentive to hold that kind of money would diminish, and your incentive to save uh, holdings in that kind of money would, would be discouraged. Right, right. And I think another concept that might be interesting to bring to this discussion around government monetary intervention is so obviously there is the reserve requirement so that is you know the typical explanation from looking at a textbook uh, but there is also the capital requirements that are in place so for example the Basel 2 and Basel 3 capital requirement rules could you comment a little bit on which reserve which requirement you believe actually constrains the banks is it that they effectively go past you know, it's not the reserve requirement that constrains them, but perhaps the capital ones. It's uh, yeah. So that's the so-called liquidity uh, reserve and the capital reserve. So the liquidity reserve is the um, the amount of money that you would have to hold in in base money. So that would be the the national fiat money, right? And for the uh, for a bank, it would mean it would have um, uh, to hold a certain amount of um, uh, money on its account with the central bank. Right. to back up all the money that is, uh, it creates in the, in the business with its own clients. Right. So uh, let's say it creates, uh, whatever, $100 billion, and the reserve requirement uh, in cash, right, the liquidity requirement would be 2%, and it would have to hold um, uh, two, $2 billion in, 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 uh, uh, on the account with, with the central bank. So that is then a limitation of the amount of money um, that it could create uh, in the business with its own clients. The other uh, reserve is the capital reserve. Um, so in that case, uh, the government tells well, you you need to hold uh, so and so much um, uh, percent, or you need to finance so and so much percent of all your um, uh, assets out of your own money. Right? You cannot fully finance everything by taking out credits with a central bank or with other market participants. And otherwise, so the the, the bank would say, okay. Um, uh, all the money that I, I lend out, that I so that I invest, I just uh, uh, um, uh, obtain this by creating money out of thin air. So it could just uh, have an indefinite amount of money just uh, by uh, created by a, a stroke of a pen, and uh, lend this out, then earn interest on this, and right? or take out credits with with the central bank and then hand them on to other market participants, which might be very interesting if interest rates are very low. Uh, so by um, uh, obliging the, the banks to hold a certain amount um, or to finance a part of their investments 
by their own money, by equity, right, they limit the the amount of leverage that they uh, into which they can go. Now, um, right, without a limitation of the, the sort, of course, you could imagine that any bank, right, could just have an un, virtually unlimited bank um, balance sheet, right? It could just um, uh, create money out of thin air or take out uh, credits with the central bank at very low interest rates, and then as, as soon as, uh, as long as it finds customers who would be paying marginally more, so the best, let's say the central bank um, lends at one percent, and it would find customers um, who would be ready uh, to pay two uh, percent on or three percent on a on a on a loan, right? The bank might uh, go on and on lending and lending uh, ever more. Uh, so there would be no limitation of this sort uh, in the business. Now, it's, it's, uh, these, all these um, reco- uh, capital requirements are somewhat artificial um, if we compare them to, to any other business, right? We wouldn't ask of any other business that they respect liquidity ratios or uh, uh, capital ratios. And the, the reason we do this in the case of, of banks is um, that... Uh, uh, banks are uh, their, their existence is, is sort of say uh, guaranteed by the constant support coming from the central bank, and because the banks know this, well, they um, uh, they they don't respect themselves those limitations as they would in other businesses. Let me let me still put this in other words, right? Um, if you if you look at any other business, let's say a shoe business, or you have a gardening company, or, or whatever, really any other business. Um, entrepreneurs voluntarily, spontaneously, right, have a certain amount of their assets in the form of cash, and right? so they they don't need to be obliged by the law to do this, and they finance their activity to a uh, quite large extent out of their own money, rather than just taking all uh, money out in, in the form of debt and then invest it. Why is this so? Well, because um, liquidity and uh, uh, capital, so equity capital are the natural buffers in an economic system. It's what keeps companies alive, what protects them. It's, it's a nation, uh, natural uh, safety valves, if you wish. Um, if a company makes losses, well, the, uh, the losses impair the ability of the company to pay back its debt. So this is why you have uh, equity, right? So it's, it, the, the economic function of equity is to absorb the losses in bad, in bad years. And the economic function of liquidity, so of cash on the bank or cash in your uh, cash drawer and, and, and so on, uh, in your wallet, is to uh, allow you to with, uh, withstand unforeseen um, payments that you have to make. Right? There's uh, some um, uh, machine that has uh, fallen out of service. You need to buy a replacement machine and so on. You need to have uh, cash right away in order to, to make this payment or something else, right? Um, so in most businesses, and also in private life, right, you always uh, make sure that you have enough cash on hand and you uh, make sure that you are not over-indebted because uh, this uh, increases the probability and actually makes quite sure that you will go out of business if uh, any adverse circumstance arises. So uh, the question then is, uh, if a normal business operates, let's say, with... 5% liquidity, some, some businesses with more left, 10, 15% liquidity, and so on. And the uh, normal business would operate with uh, at least 50% equity, right? It's a small and medium-sized company. Typically, they have at least 50% equity. And even large companies, uh, which is already a little different, but even large companies, industrial companies, they would have 
30, 20, 30, 40 percent of equity. How come that a bank can operate with uh, just 5 percent of equity? And in, in 2007, uh, most of them, most of the large banks actually operated only with 1 percent equity or, uh, or, or 2. Now, if you translate this into, uh, into the terms that, that I just discussed, namely that um, uh, uh, equity capital is some sort of a safety buffer, right, that absorbs losses. If you have a 2% equity uh, financing, it means that actually your buffer, as compared to all of your investments, only 2%. That is, uh, you are operating, as a matter of fact, on a 2% error margin. Now, uh, Mr. Oliveira, uh, this this a two percent error margin is not uh, 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 normal, right? And so this is this is not human. Actually, it's not part of the human economy. No human being operates in, in practical life on a two percent error margin. It's just completely out of the question, right? So, yes. so I mean, uh, we have this kind of precision only in mathematical operations, purely intellectual games, and and so on. There we have uh, this kind of error margin. Engineering, right? So if we construe an environment and we have all the materials, we control all the factors, then we can sometimes bring it down to two percent error. But in business, this is completely out of the question because we are constantly interacting with. Um, uh, with, with people who make choices that we cannot control, uh, so, so the amount of money that our customers will pay is we cannot control this. Um, then there are lots of things that, uh, lots of uh, factors, um, uh, lots of parameters that we cannot control. So there are lots of things that can go wrong uh, from the production side, supply lines, uh, uh, people fall ill, there, there is uh, a flu that affects uh, half of your employees, and, and so on. There are lots of things that, that happen in, in, a, in a firm's life that you cannot control and which makes that, well, the error margin. Uh, is actually rather in the area of whatever twenty, thirty percent. Sometimes it's more. There are businesses they're, they're more. Right? They're very cyclical, so business might go down fifty percent, eighty percent in any one year, and it goes up uh, uh, again, and so on. So this this is human human business, and that's why most companies have very substantial equity buffers that allows them to get over tough times. So the question is, how come that banks? Right, that, uh, after all, are connected in many ways with the real economy, so are also exposed to uh, whatever adverse events might, that might affect the real economy, can afford to operate on one or two, or maybe today, let's say 5%, let's be generous, uh, error margin. And, and the answer is, well, I mean, in, really they can't. And so they themselves are not that good. I mean, they're very smart guys and so on. They have great diplomas and they're very good in math. But the world in which they're operating is not a 2% or 5% error margin world. So the, this implies then, of course, that they're making losses somewhere. And uh, somebody is paying for these losses, but it's uh, obviously not them, because they are staying in business and they don't have the means to stay in business out of their own, uh, of their own money. So the, the short answer then is that they stay in business at these low uh, uh, equity margins because they're constantly subsidized by the central bank, out of the central uh, bank's printing press, which means uh, on the, the, the bottom line is that uh, actually it's all the users of money that subsidize these uh, these commercial banks because if the central bank opens uh, uh, brings into motion the the printing press right it creates money out of nothing in order to bail out uh, commercial banks well it dilutes the purchasing power of each dollar 
uh, and uh, this this is ultimately paid by all other people who use that money. Fantastic explanation, Dr. Holzman. I think essentially what you're getting at there is that these commercial banks in a fractional reserve banking fiat money system are able to benefit from the implicit sort of uh, bailout guarantee or the that sort of uh, the the knowledge that they will receive if they need it that funding from the central bank that allows them to take kind of an unnecessary level of risk. Have I understood you correctly? Yeah, I mean we, we shouldn't uh, stress too much the, the word unnecessary. Right? I mean, given the uh, the institutional context in which they're operating, right? Given the presence of the central bank, I mean, what they're doing is not unnecessary. It's, it's just great business for them. Right? But it, they, they take on more risks than, than they would and that they could if the central bank weren't there. And right. As, uh, right. So as a consequence, uh, we get these problems. Right, right. And I think that touches on the, the explanation you were discussing there, Dr. Holzman, was around how you know, even small businesses in, you know, would have to hold, generally they hold a little bit more capital compared to banks, let's say. And one of the points that you make in your book is that essentially the existence of fractional reserve banking changes the whole game such that many businesses now go into debt where in the past or in a under, you know, a non-fractional reserve banking fiat money system, they might have been more equity based. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah. If you, if you had a world without money creation, without artificial money creations, you would have just natural money production, right? You, you, let's say you had a, a world that was based on, on precious metal money, so you have silver coins, gold coins, and then you have silver and gold-based banking and so on, but which would be 100% banking, so for each um, uh, ounce of gold credited on your account, there would be an ounce of gold somewhere in the vault of the banks. So in uh, such a world, the, the money supply would be limited, and money production would be constrained by, uh, well, the natural production costs, right? And as a consequence, the, the uh, production of money would usually lag behind uh, somewhat the production of all other goods, uh, goods and, and services that are being created in the, in the economy. Now, and, uh, that implies that in such a world, the, the price level would tend to be either stable or to shrink. Probably it would shrink, right? A natural... Um, economy is an economy in which price deflationary tendencies would prevail. So this is a very important thing to to realize. And actually, we had uh, such a world uh, during many decades of, of the 19th century, and actually up to World War II. Right? During peace times, we always had price deflationary uh, tendencies in in the Western world. Now, uh, in in such a world, uh, credit plays a very um, uh, subordinate role, right? Uh, of course, you, there, there would be credit and, and so on, but um, actually it would be very strongly discouraged. Clearly, I mean, for example, think of a household, right? You wouldn't buy a house by taking out a credit. Uh, let's say you buy the house today for 100 so you take out a credit for 100 and then uh, because of the price deflationary tendencies in in. Uh, 20 years or 30 years, your house will be worth only, whatever, 95 or, or 97. Right? So you would actually lose money because you would have to pay back the 100, but the, the house itself would be worth less than it was before. So you wouldn't finance the purchase of, of the house this way. What you would do is exactly what our ancestors did, uh, that is our grandmothers, uh, great-grandfathers, and, and so on. Right? They saved cash. 
until they had enough of it, until they had the, the hundred to buy the house, and that was it. So it was an outright purchase, no credit involved. Now, for firms, it's somewhat different. Uh, companies, for companies, uh, there are sometimes good business opportunities, so they might need some extra capital, and they would not always want to take in another partner or uh, increase the, the shareholder base and so on. So that would be the right occasion then to take out a credit. And so um, if um, uh, uh, the, the opportunity arises, you take out the credit, you make your, your investment. Now, for a firm... I need to, to realize this, right? For a firm, the, the diminishing price level in, in a natural economy is not a big thing because what counts for a firm is not the price level, but the difference between its revenue and its cost. Uh, in other words, the difference between uh, selling prices and buying prices. Uh, and so if uh, there are price deflationary tendencies, well, then uh, the revenue of a firm might tend to diminish in the course of time, but uh, its cost base would also diminish. So as a consequence, it might very well stay uh, profitable in a price deflationary environment, which was the case. So f for such a firm, then, if it takes out a credit, um, that might not be a big deal because it would still earn money thanks to the credit and then be able well, to, uh, to, to pay it back out of the profits and so on. So credit would play some role, but it would be a subordinate role. Things change completely once you have uh, money creation through factional reserve banks, right? because then the principle of money creation is, of course, uh, based on um, uh, credit creation, right? The, the bank brings the new money into circulation by uh, granting additional credits, right? That, that's, that's what they do. So for this reason alone, then, uh, the, um, uh, the credit market uh, is artificially boosted. And um, things get even uh, worse once money creation is pushed to such a level that you have constantly rising um, price inflation rates, right? So whereas, in the, let's say, in the 19th century, we typically had uh, declining price uh, levels. So each year, whatever, some price inflation, 0.5, maybe sometimes 2% uh, price inflation. Now, after World War II, we suddenly had constantly rising price level. And if you have a constantly rising price level, then getting into debt to finance uh, your um, purchases, uh, make long-term long investment, buying a house, uh, uh, extending uh, uh, the size of your firm and so on, actually is very, or becomes then very uh, interesting, right? Because think again of a household, which is the situation with, uh, that most people are uh, familiar with. If you buy a family home, um, uh, in, a, in the context of a rising price level, well, then you take out a hundred now, and you have to pay back eventually the hundred. But in the rising, um, uh, if, if the price level is rising, then all uh, prices rise. That is also the price of labor rises. That the household income is uh, uh, susceptible to rise. So uh, paying the debt out of a rising income is, of course. Uh, very convenient. It becomes easier, right? The debt service becomes easier in the, in the course of time. So therefore, um, uh, households have an incentive to go into debt and buy the house, whereas they didn't have so in the, in the, in the 19th century, which is why today everybody takes out uh, a loan from the bank to purchase an apartment, a house, etc., uh, and then pays it back because 
uh, if you have 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to pay back your, your credit, well, then the sum that you have to pay back on a fixed interest uh, rate loan is always the same, whereas your, your revenue uh, continues to rise. So it's a good deal. So, uh, and of course, the same thing holds true for, for governments and the same thing holds true for firms, right? So in a price inflationary environment, the environment in which we are today operating and have been operating for the past uh, two or three generations, uh, debt is actually um, uh, is the rational strategy, right? You don't just build up equity and then make a purchase. You buy first, uh, financed by debt, uh, and eventually you pay back. So this is the, 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 the reason why uh, the financial culture has changed so much within a century and is really due to completely monetary uh, causes. Fantastic explanation again, Dr. Holzman. Uh, and I think one, t- one concept from your book that came up as you were explaining that is some people might think, oh, but in a world with less credit, how might all these projects get done? And I'll just quote from your book. One section you say is, bank credit does not create resources. It channels existing resources into other businesses than those which would have used them if these credits had not existed. Could you just elaborate on some of the common, mis- like the, the confusion that can come and actually a better way to think through that? Yeah. If, if you go to the bank and you take out a loan to buy the studio that you're interested in or the, the apartment or the house and so on. So it's, it's true then the, the loan allows you to own that uh, the, that, that apartment or, the, or that house. But of course, you, you buy only something that uh, the house that, that has existed independent of the credit, right? If you had, which means that if you hadn't bought it, then it would have had some other owner, either the, the person who sold it to you would uh, remain the owner because he, he doesn't find anybody else who's, who pays him enough, uh, so he would just keep it for himself and for forever for good reason. Or somebody else would have obtained it and he would have bought it at a lower price because you become the owner because thanks to the loan you are able to pay the highest price. That's, that's the whole uh, point of, of, of the thing. And the same thing holds true for a firm, right? If, if you, thanks to a bank credit, you can hire additional people, um, you can um, uh, build a larger factory building uh, and so on, right? Then uh, what, what, what this means is that thanks to the additional credit, you come to possess all these resources, right? You are able to attract additional employees who would have worked either for somebody else or who would have pursued their own interests at, at home, would not have worked for anybody, would have just have been a homemaker or, I don't know, would have pursued some other activity that, that would not have been paid. You are able to, to buy additional raw materials, intermediate products and in order to increase your production. You are able to, uh, to uh, uh, build a, a larger factory building. But of course, the same resources that you buy, the raw materials or the intermediate products, right? The, the oil, the, the, the electricity, uh, um, uh, whatever, steel and so on that you transform, all of this would have been sold to somebody else, right? And also the, the, the materials that you use to enlarge your factory building, right? The same materials could have been used for other building purposes and so on. So what, what credit does is not to enrich the economy as a whole. It channels the available resources into uh, employments that would have not existed without uh, that um, uh, loan or without that credit, but of course, uh, 
which precisely for, for the reason are not inherently somewhat superior to those other employments to which they would have been dedicated in the absence of the credit. Fantastic. It's such a clear explanation. Uh, Dr. Holzman, another topic I'd love to, for you to touch on, and now this is more for, let's say, people who are detractors of, say, Austrian economics. They might come out and say, oh, look, you know, they might say things like, we gave up the gold standard because it didn't work, or that, you know, you guys, you're all crank conspiracy theorists, you oppose a p- empirical testing. A- another common one, I think, is this idea that, Okay, so these Austrians, they are considering a totally free market when actually a truly free market, absent government monetary intervention, has never existed, right? Now, obviously, I understand some of this comes to, you know, uh, the Austrian economic methodology where we must assess the seen versus the unseen. So what is the way to respond to people who, who give that challenge of saying, well, look, a totally free market in money has never existed? Uh, let me first uh, make a little statement uh, on general. I, I mean, I would say, I would always start off uh, saying that, uh, of course, Austrians don't have a monopoly on the truth, right? so, and Austrians might be wrong. Okay? It's not because you you uh, have read Mises and even studied Mises, Rothbard, and, and Hayek and whoever uh, very thoroughly, and then uh, pursue your own research based on these rights and so on. That somehow you become error prone, right? So this is or, or, or immune to error. Immune to error, so this is of course not the case. So Austrians should take um, uh, criticism gladly because that's uh, well, it's actually the only way to improve, right? And to always double check uh, your premises, check the facts, and so on. This is a standard scientific procedure. Um, and then, of course, there are uh, uh, better criticisms and, and worse criticisms, right? I mean, the the arguments they say, well, Austrians are uh, recommending. Um, uh, uh, money competition, currency competition, uh, whereas uh, uh, such a situation has never existed. That's, of course, um, that, that, that's a bad argument, right? I mean, uh, if you said, uh, you could have said the same thing, let's say, in the 19th century, uh, uh, there had been a couple of centuries uh, slavery already on the North American soil, and you could say, well, I mean, you're recommending to free all the slaves. I mean, but we never had anything like a purely um, free uh, society in which everybody was free to do whatever he wished and so on. Uh, so, therefore, uh, does this mean that we should rule this this out? I mean, you see what I'm getting at? Yes, because something has not yet existed in the past, that that's per se a reason uh, to, to reject it. Of course, certain things have not existed in the past because they are bad or because they are impossible. But clearly, um, uh, currency competition is not something that is uh, impossible. And if the Austrian arguments are worth anything, then clearly it's not all bad. So I would say on, on, on these grounds, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't accept this kind of criticism. Right, right. And so then uh, how about in the case of, say, specifically the gold standard? Uh, so I understand, obviously, as you explain in your book, there was the classical gold standard. So this is like sort of 1870s through till I think, kind of early 1900s. Now, obviously, that, w- that itself was not a you know, free market in money. And yet, that was a time period where sort of most... Austrians would say, well, at least the money was, it was a little bit better than, um, it was better than before. Yeah, that's right, because um, we still had a monetary system based on commodity money, and therefore you had the inherent break that comes from cost of production. Right? So in, in, in that respect, it was certainly incomparably superior to the current system. Right? The, the, 
the 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 ironic thing is that precisely for the for the reasons that are currently praised in the current uh, monetary system, namely that we have a money uh, type of money that can be um, multiplied at, at will. So it's a purely political question whether we double the money supply or we increase it by five percent or whatever. Uh, precisely, this is the is the biggest disadvantage. Right? But uh, uh, okay. So at the time, right, we had this still the advantage that we had a. Um, uh, commodity money system, which was limited, was removed from pure human uh, human arbitrariness. So it was therefore part of the overall market economy in which all uh, productive activities are in competition with one another and related to one another in some way. Um, but of course, as you as you mentioned, right, it was already a deterioration as compared to the previous uh, monetary system. Uh, before 1872, um, most of the world was actually on a silver standard. And only uh, the UK and uh, Australia and uh, and the US uh, and the US only f- f- not for a very long time had been on a gold standard. Now, um, silver, as compared to gold, has this big advantage that the purchasing power is uh, such that it can be used in most daily transactions, right? In most daily exchanges. So, actually, most of the the silver that is being used for monetary purposes that is for the purpose of being exchanged against other goods, is in the hands of the people, right? of, of, of really of, of common people and so on. Now, if you have a gold money, uh, this, this is no longer the case because gold coins have such a high purchasing power, not only today, but also uh, in those days, that you can actually use them in the exchanges only for very limited purposes. If you buy a house, you buy a nice suit, uh, you buy some, some very con- expensive consumer items, uh, or maybe if you have a very large uh, family, you can do uh, whatever, the, uh, the weekly groceries uh, with, with a gold coin, with a small gold coin. But for most other things, they're, they're completely useless. So the, the only way to use them is actually to have gold on your account, and then you uh, use uh, checks uh, or whatever, banknotes uh, backed by gold and so on to, to, to make purchases. That is, having a gold money uh, quasi-automatically uh, uh, um boosts the importance of financial intermediaries. You need banks uh, under, under a gold standard, whereas you don't need banks under a silver standard. And so even though um, right, the, uh, the gold standard period was incomparably superior uh, in, in many respects to what we have today, it was already a deterioration as compared to the situation that we had before. Fantastic. And I think that also comes to this concept of divisibility as well. So in obviously the kind of like the the amount of value to weight ratio of silver compared to gold, right, is kind of what was driving what you were explaining there. And so perhaps in you know the modern day, would there be an increasing tendency then towards one best overall money where we can have computers that can subdivide more finely? Yeah, of course. I mean, the uh, the the um, uh, to the extent that we, we we're used, we, today we are used to using ba- uh, accounts, right? Monetary accounts. So the as soon as you have an account, then of course you you can subdivide very easily, right? Uh, and this is, uh, for example, one uh, 
brings us to, to one argument that has been sometimes leveled against money, such as, uh, as Bitcoin, right? Because people were saying, well, yeah, Bitcoin suffers already from the problem that the, the quantity cannot be increased, and then you get these infinitesimally uh, small units that you have to exchange. But that, of course, um, per se is, is completely irrelevant, right? Because you can subdivide, as you will, up to the tenth or twentieth or hundredth uh, decimal after, uh, after the comma. Fantastic. Yeah, and I think it's, it's great um, you bring that up because uh, one topic that comes up in online you know, cryptocurrency discussion and uh, some of us who believe that there is a tendency then towards one best money. And so I was curious to actually ask you that in your book, you, you, uh, you, you say, uh, for there are good reasons to assume that a free society would harbor a variety of different monies, which would all be natural monies in our sense. Do you, I guess my question then is, do you believe that was more for historical reasons and perhaps in an increasingly digital and internet commerce or e-commerce world that there might be a tendency then towards one sort of best overall money? Yeah, I, I mean, my my mind is not fully. Um, uh, I, I don't have come to a very firm conclusion as far as these things are concerned. I still uh, think that um, it, if we had a natural uh, economy in which um, we had currency competition and so on, so in such an economy, the role of intermediaries of banks and so on would not be as big as it is today. Now, how small would it be? I have no clue. So here we are. So I don't have a glass ball. I cannot tell you this. Sure, I, sure. All, I, all I know is that uh, because we have this monetary system, which creates constantly money out of nothing, which creates price inflation and tendency and so on, in such an environment, inter- intermediaries play a big role. So therefore, in such an environment, uh, people use accounts and, and so on. I think they would less if uh, there were price deflationary tendencies. In that case, people would simply hold more of their media exchange in cash. And in that case, I think, uh, yeah, there would be uh, parallel holdings of, uh, of gold and silver for certain things. You would rather use gold, for example, if you travel abroad and so on, right? I mean, uh, you jump into the plane, um, you, you wouldn't take uh, five kilos of, of silver with you. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So you would, but you might take a few gold coins with you. Right. So for such things, you would use gold. Um, yeah, I think that, therefore, that in such a, such a case, uh, there would be a greater variety uh, of, of media of exchange. Whereas in the current system, it's true there are very strong um, unifying uh, tendencies, right? Because you have to go through an account anyway, uh, or it's the most convenient way to go about this. And then from that respect, then all monies are... Um, uh, compared to the same criteria, right? There's the only one dimension that comes into play, play, and uh, uh, so this might turn out to create one single um, money that is um, uh, that dominates than than all exchanges. Right, right. I see. And I think another point that you know I might like to get your comments on, Dr. Holzman. There's this book, uh, "The Economics and Ethics of Private Property" by the great Hans Hermann Hopper. And one area that he points out is he he, he actually su- he suggests that competition in monies is more like a system of partial barter, and that competitive monies are not the outcome of free market actions, but are invariably the result of coercion of government-imposed obstacles placed in the path of rational economic conduct. Do you have any comments on that? 
uh, I don't remember this, uh, the special passage very well. So he says that if you have currency, you have competition between monies, that that's the outgrowth of uh, government intervention. Is this the point? Y- yes. So I think he's he's trying to say that that's government-imposed obstacles that have been placed in. I think perhaps he he might be referring to this idea of you know just gold standard or just gold use. Mm. I'm just curious if you if you have any thoughts yeah, on yeah, that. Well, well, I know that uh, Hans, yeah, yeah, uh, Hans he, um, I mean, his, his uh, general uh, uh, argument is right that you have these cumul- cumulative effects that come uh, with uh, 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 the, uh, the spreading of a, of an exchange network, right? Let's say if if gold has uh, is being um, used in a larger set of exchanges than than silver, then of course. Um, the, uh, the the opportunity cost of holding silver increases, and the opportunity cost of holding gold uh, diminishes. So for 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 this reason, right, there are uh, snowballing effects, so to say, right, that that makes that once the money has become uh, even just slightly uh, more widespread in use than uh, some other money, uh, that money will eventually come to steam steamroll all other money. So will crowd all other monies out of uh, the market. Um, and the argument per se is, is correct, but I, I, I don't think it applies in all cases, uh, precisely because for certain exchanges you wouldn't use silver, right? Or you would, uh, or excuse me, or you wouldn't, uh, yeah, you wouldn't use silver, and for other things you wouldn't uh, use uh, gold. The only exception being if, anyway, all exchanges are based on uh, purely um, uh, uh, accounting exchanges, right? You have only scriptural money. You only have uh, wire from one uh, bank account to another. In that uh, case, yes, the argument becomes um, becomes relevant. Right. So I, I would agree with him, right? In the in the in the in the price inflationary context, yeah, there are such tendencies, and the argument would hold true. But uh, outside of that, not necessarily. Right. I see. I see. Uh, okay. So one topic that. Many of my listeners might be interested to hear your thoughts. Obviously, uh, this is a Bitcoin and Austrian economics sort of podcast. And one concept that we consider is just that perhaps gold has more of a centralizing tendency and that it's politically vulnerable and that in some ways Bitcoin can present a way that's more resistant to that government co-opting. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with this argument, right? I mean, definitely gold is a, is a very political uh, money, as we see today, right? <laughs> I mean, mm. look who who's holding the the, the greatest uh, gold reserves in the world. It's not, well, I mean, of course, private person as well, but central banks have huge holdings. And, and central banks do everything to prevent that the gold ever be used as a medium of exchange. Right? So th- they do precisely what sometimes critics of the free market say that capitalists would be doing. I mean, they withhold all the good stuff from the market so that people are forced to use the bad stuff. <laughs> In a way, that's, that's what they are doing. And it, it has always been this way, and it will never change, right? So um, uh, gold is a very political metal. Um, it's a very political market, just as, uh, for example, the oil market is, is, is also a very political uh, market. So you always have very large uh, government interventions uh, there. So, uh, yeah. Um, so you can sidestep this by decentralization, um, and, and Bitcoin might might be a, a, a way to to bring this about. Yeah. So because in Bitcoin precisely you have this, this decentralization, um, uh, at least for the moment. Right. Right. And one other concept that I think my listeners, you know, they they definitely will want to hear the your answer to this. So I'm not sure if you've read the book The Bitcoin Standard by 
Safety in a Moose. And he, in, in that book... He, no, I did not. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll just outline the basics. One of the basic arguments that he outlines is, and obviously it, it's not certain, it's, it's just an argument. He, he, he suggests that Bitcoin may, from a stock-to-flow ratio point of view, actually, because of the algorithm of Bitcoin versus gold, which the supply of which expands at roughly 1.5% per year, one argument that Safetyne advances in that book is that Bitcoin may, you know, decades from now, become even, quote-unquote, harder than gold. And from that point of view, it, you know, let's say someday people go and find ways to go and do asteroid mining and mine gold, but they'll never find a way to create more Bitcoin. So do you have any comments on that sort of stock-to-flow ratio argument? Yeah, I mean, if the... Uh, again, I'm not an information scientist, right? So sure. you don't ask me about the solidity, viability of the, of the Bitcoin code and, and, and so on. But sure. if the code is uh, and does what has been announced and what's been advertised, yeah, then indeed, right, that, that's, a, uh, of course, uh, would be something that, that would put Bitcoin uh, on a superior competitive footing as compared to gold because right, the, you would expect that the purchasing power of gold decline relative to Bitcoin in the course of time, right? So definitely then Bitcoin would become, uh, or is already now, right, the, the harder currency as compared to gold. Fantastic. Okay, yeah. So, And then another concept that um, I'd love to get your thoughts on is even within the cryptocurrency world, one concept that Many, many of us who consider ourselves students of Austrian economics, we, uh, we consider you know, Karl Menger's The Origins of Money essay. And in that essay, he speaks about this concept of the most saleable good, you know, the one that, has, that best preserves your value at, through time and space. And so I guess the question then is, would you believe that even within the cryptocurrency world that there would be strong sort of network effects that would pull towards the one most saleable good, the one with the most liquidity? Uh, what do you mean within the Bitcoin world that is... Uh, oh, I'm referring to how... Bitcoin cash to Bitcoin... Yeah, and, uh, to some of the other, you know, the other cryptocurrencies. Would you believe that there is a tendency mm. then towards the most liquid one? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is the, the the standard argument that um, it's the same argument that we discussed before, right? We were talking about Hans Hoppe's ideas. Actually, it's not Hans Hoppe's argument. The argument is very old, right? So right. I mean, you you find it also, for example, in Jevons and various other economists of the 19th century. Um, yeah, the argument is of course valid per se, right? So the larger is the um, is the exchange network that already exists, the greater are the comparative advantages of using that money. Uh, as compared to others that are used only in a smaller uh, framework. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, that's a fantastic perspective. And look, I think we're just coming up to the end of the time we've got allocated. So, Dr. Holzman, perhaps just if you've got any closing comments or perhaps if you've got uh, a recommendation for my listeners who like Austrian economics and they like Austrian monetary theory, have you got any books that, or uh, talks that you might recommend for them to listen to or read? I think it's always a, a good idea to read books, right? because that's a way of really delving more deeply into a subject and really building your own thoughts. I mean, there's no better way really to learn anything but to learn from the great masters that have been written. 
in writing in any uh, any field. So I would definitely always go via books. Uh, talks, okay, so I know today many people like, uh, like to, to listen to, to podcasts, and some people are listening to our podcast today, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a, a great way to rise interest and to um, uh, convince you, yeah, it might be really worthwhile to look into this in more detail. So, but then reading books is always the, the, the next step, and I think the most important step. Yeah, and then, well, as far as Austrian economics is concerned, uh, Austrians have, uh, especially in the, in, the, in, the, in the field of money, they've made major contributions as compared to the classical economists so of, of the 19th century. And here, uh, I would always recommend, um, as, as a first uh, text, a little book by Marie Rothbard that has the, uh, the title, What Has Government Done to Our Money? I don't like the, the, this kind of title, I must say. Right? So I, I recommend the book despite its title, not because of the title. The book is really, it's, it's an excellent intro, introduction to, to monetary thought. And then there are various other books uh, that have been written on the, on the subjects uh, that are very good. Uh, and also um, uh, longer articles, for example, Hans uh, Hoppe's article, we mentioned him already. Um, uh, yes, uh, uh, a longer piece, it's, it's around 50-page article, um, uh, How is Fiat Money Possible? This is a fantastic uh, piece of analysis uh, that gives you in a reasonable time frame a good introduction to the, the main mechanisms that, that come uh, into play. Uh, then if you go further on, you might read Mises' Theory of Money and Credit. You Fantastic. might have a look at my book that you were kind enough to mention, The, the Ethics of Money Production. Uh, there are um, other authors. There's uh, Hans Zenholz. He was a, a German-American uh, um, economist who died in 2007. He had a couple of uh, small books on, on the subject of money. There's uh, Huerta de Soto, uh, Jesus Huerta de Soto. He's a Spanish economist and has published a great text on uh, uh, money, uh, bank credit and economic cycles, uh, which is available for free uh, on the Internet side of the Mises Institute. And uh, there is uh, a book of um, uh, Professor Philip Bargos from the University of Madrid in, de in defense of deflation. It's also a wonderful book uh, on, on this subject. And, uh, yeah, there are various other uh, uh, smaller texts and uh, that do not right away come to my mind, but you will have no f difficulty finding. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I've, I've read actually probably four or five of those. I love them. So thank you so much um, for that. Uh, Dr. Hulsman, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to come and uh, teach us today. I think my listeners will really, really enjoy this. And I think uh, you have been, personally, you've been so, so influential in my own thought on, you know, learning more about Austrian economics. So thank you so much for all that you do. And look, thank you very much for coming on the show today. You gave me the best comment, uh, best compliment that a professor can hope for. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I wish uh, you all the best for for your side and, and for educating uh, people on these very important topics. I hope you enjoyed the insights from Dr. Guido Hulsman. Check the show notes in the RSS feed or on my website, stefanlevera.com, for links to the recommended books and to Dr. Hulsman's website. If you enjoyed the podcast, please remember that doing these podcasts takes me significant time in researching the guest's work, getting high-quality guests on, and audio editing production time. So if you want to help me out, please do retweet and share it around widely. That's it from me. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.